0: When our Lord speaks to us through the Scriptures, this is not just a simple act of, of Him just communicating. This is an act of our Lord communicating for us, for our benefit, and so that we might experience the blessings and joy of that very victory. In that light, I encourage you to grab your Bibles, and if you would, turn to Colossians chapter 3. I think it's important if the Lord takes time for Himself to speak to us that we would note what He says and note it carefully here According to the Word of the Lord, Ephesians, I'm sorry, Colossians, what did I say? Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, verses 1 all the way through 14. Hear the Word of the Lord as He speaks to us this morning. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray together. Lord, once again, we are incredibly grateful for the Word in which You have spoken to us this morning. We pray that You would now open our hearts and our minds so that we would be attuned to the way You would embed that deeply within our lives so that we indeed would be different because of hearing Your Word this morning. We thank You again for such a great and awesome gift that You have communicated to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. My parents are wonderful people. Uh, They're great folks, and it's uh, unfortunate that you haven't met them yet. They're snowbirds. They uh, spend the winter months down in Florida, so you haven't seen them, but when they are here during the summer months, they will, I'm sure, come and visit more often than not, and you will get to know, and uh, I suspect that those of you who take the time to get to know my folks will really enjoy them. They're, They're great people. They're quirky... They've got their oddities, as everybody does, but, uh, but overall, they're, they're pretty great people. One of the quirks, particularly my father, and part of the reason why I'm telling you this is just to warn you so that you know when he comes up to you. My father, uh, I'm named after my father, so he's a Henry Knapp, and I'm a Henry Knapp, and the way that he will introduce himself, he will come up to you and say, Hello, Doug, my name is Henry. You know Henry Knapp? Well, I'm the original. He's just a copy. So I'm just a copy. So that's a big thing. Now, he... For years, when I was growing up, uh, as I was getting into trouble and doing things I shouldn't do and stuff like that, my dad would take me aside, and he had a very stern look upon his face, and he would say, that is not how a Henry Knapp acts. A Henry Knapp would not act that way. And that was his, that was his critique, of, and of course I would, you know, and be very... Well, finally, when I was somewhere in my 20s or whatever, I had a four-year-old tantrum, and said, well, maybe I don't want to be a Henry Knapp anymore. And he just kind of looked at me and said, too bad, <laughs> because that's all there is to it. And he's making a point through all of this. There's a certain way that he expects somebody that is a Henry Knapp To act, there's a certain manner, there's a certain uh, attitude, there's a certain characteristic that just attaches itself with being a Henry Knapp, and he expected me to act that way. That's exactly what our opening verses of chapter four, of chapter three here in Colossians, communicate for us. The first four verses, which we spent a lot of time looking at last week, they're communicating that basically that very thing. If you claim to be Jesus Christ's child, if indeed you have been united with him, if in that miraculous way that really theologians have never been able to wrap around, nobody really wraps around, that in that mystical way that somewhere on the cross of Jesus Christ in. 2,000 years ago, you too, along with me and others, have been united with Christ. If we really and truly have been bound up with Him, if we have died with Him on the cross, and then if we raised again from the dead with Him uh, in life, then He looks at us and says, that's now who you are. You are new In Christ, we have been reunited with Him in such a way that now we stand fully and completely as His children. We truly are Christian. The word Christian, it means actually little Christ. And so it's a horribly uh, humbling thing to ever call yourself a Christian. But if indeed Christ calls you a Christian, then the first four verses here say, live consistently upon that way. If you are indeed a little Christ, if indeed you have been united with Him, then your whole orientation, your whole perspective changes. Set your thoughts, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Why? Because on earthly things is where those who are dead live. And you are no longer dead. You now are alive, so set your mind on things above. Seek the things that are above, because that's just consistent with who you are. Well, how do you do that? That's a, that's a, a great idea. And. Uh, there were times, I suppose, where I wanted to say to my father, well, what does it mean to be a Henry Knapp? How do you live like a Henry Knapp? What does it mean to live like a Christian, to be consistent in that life that God has called us to? Well, Paul takes up that word very much so in verse 5. So in verse 5 of our text, after laying that foundation, the fa- and please recognize this, because... This text, as so many others in Scriptures, has a possibility of being misunderstood. You can read this text and say, if I want to be a good Christian, this is what I have to do. That's not what this text says, and we're going to hit that over and over again throughout this passage because Paul is explicit about this. The point is not, if you want to be a Christian, do these things. The point is, since you are a Christian... Now that you claim the name of now that Christ you have been united with Christ now live consistent with who you really are live consistent with what you really are well how do we do that what does it mean to live consistent with what you really are here in verse 5 Paul begins this passage by saying in verse 5 by saying put to death therefore whatever is earthly within you put to death now, this is, uh, this is where we get the idea of mortification, where we kill something. That's actually the word here. Put to death, it's, it, it's uh, a little bit more dramatic if we say, kill it. We are supposed to kill that which is part of our earthly nature. Now, we don't think of that very often. I don't think, you know, we're good Christians, we don't talk about killing things and stuff like that. But Paul does. There's a beautiful passage which alludes exactly into what Doug set up the, uh, our time here, our worship time together with. There's a beautiful passage in Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 13, where Paul says, Put to death by the Spirit the things that are sinful within you. Put to death by the Spirit. How do we do this? What does it mean to put something to death? What does it mean to actually kill it? Okay, to kill something is to rob it of any ability, of any power of any influence over you. It is dead. You are to kill it. I have to tell you, um, that's not the language that I use about my own sin. And in my pastoral counseling, in my ministry with my discipleship, even with this body so far, I've only been here for a couple months, but when I'm talking with people and their struggle with sin, you know what words they use? They use words like struggle with sin. Or... Or, I, I'm working on my sin. I say, Where, what are some sin areas in your life? And they list them out. And then I say, well, what are you doing there? And they say, well, I'm working on it. Paul doesn't tell you to work on your sin. Paul doesn't say to struggle with your sin. Paul doesn't say to strive against your sin. Paul says, kill your sin. And this is an active verb. This is, a, this is a, uh, a, an active command of Paul. Paul. It's not a suggestion. It's not an idea. He doesn't say, maybe you should do this since you're now a Christian. He says, if you are a Christian, put this to death. Kill it. By the Spirit. The the one who does the acting, the one who actually acts on your behalf to kill the sin in your life is God and God alone. By the work of the power of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, Paul recognizes that and he states that crystal clearly. It's God who will be at work in your life. Nevertheless, the command to each one of us, put to death the things of the earthly nature. I wish that we... Use that language more often. I wish that you use that language more often. What's something that you're struggling with in your life? Where does sin have a hold of you? Where, where are you struggling before God? When you talk about it, when you share with it, when you have an accountability partner or your spouse or something like, or your kids, and you go to them and say, "I'm, I have this sin area. Help me to kill it." Pray that because here's the thing. Um, I don't want my sin to show. Trust me, I don't want you to see the sin in my life. I don't want to see the sin in your life. And so I'm happy, I'm satisfied enough if I tamp down my sin, if I control it enough so that it doesn't show when I'm up front here on stage and where Kelly's really the only one that sees the the depth of my sin. I'm satisfied if I control it a little bit because to kill something is hard work. You never let go of it. You never release... You are constantly seeking the Lord's blessing. You're always, each and every day, saying, God, by the power of your Spirit, kill this sin in my life. And that's hard to do, because it takes constant attention. It takes constant prayer. And it's so much easier to say, man, just don't let me fall into this sin in such a way that would embarrass me really bad. And so we're used to tamping our sin down, where Paul says, "No, by the power of the Spirit, kill the sin in your life." I, I'm just guessing, but I bet that so much would change in our community here together if we used to use, if we got used to using the language that Paul uses. We talk about struggling with our sin. We talk about working on our sin. We talk about lifting our sin before the Lord and all that stuff. And obviously we have to do that. But at least the language that Paul uses takes our sin so much more seriously. What is it that we are to put to death? Put to death, therefore, Paul says... At the end of verse 5 there, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And every once in a while, and you, you run into these this t- as well, when we talk with people who are outside of the church, and sometimes when we talk with people inside the church. They say, I just wish that the Bible was more relevant. Or I just wish that the church was more relevant. Or a good sermon is somebody who makes the Bible relevant for us. What in the world could possibly be more relevant than this line, put to death, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, then he goes on a little bit later, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene language from your talk. What? Think about what this world would be like if Christians, those who claim the name of Jesus Christ, killed that whole attitude in their life. Everything in their, in their earthly nature, if that was killed, how different would this world be? It would be, what, what, what could possibly be more relevant than the command here? To, now, on the other hand, I look at that list and I sit there and think, okay, put to death sexual immorality. Eh, sometimes my thoughts aren't Exactly what they should be. Okay, uh, impurity. Uh, I'm not the purest guy, but okay. Uh, passions that things get. Okay, sometimes I get overly worked up. Then I know evil desires. I don't think I have too many of those. Uh, you know, covetousness. You can kind of read the list and you sit and think. As descriptive as it is, you know, it it's not exactly me. It's not totally me. It's sort of. And then you read on a little bit further. Look at verse 6 and 7. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked. Paul says, Are you kidding me? This is your life apart from Christ. Paul doesn't know me. He doesn't know you, but he's talking exactly to you. And he says, This is your life. There's no defense out there. It's not, well, I'm sort of bad sexually. I'm sort of bad passion-wise. I'm sort of bad. No, he's saying you used to walk in that life, and until you begin to see your life the way Paul does, you'll never kill those things, because you'll never take them seriously enough. Epithumia. Epithumia. That's Paul's word for evil desires. We have it in here: evil desires, and almost all the translations translated evil desires because it's hard to translate. Um, put to death your evil desires. Put to death your epithumia. Uh, thumia is a word for desires, but epi doesn't mean uh, do- doesn't mean evil, or or an epi means over, or above, or super. Put to death, Paul says here. Your super desires. Put to death your hyper desires. Put to death why? Is there anything wrong with desiring food and shelter and desiring love in this world and desiring intimacy? In this? No, of course not. All those things are great. Put to death those epi desires. Put to death those super desires when anything You desire more than what is appropriate for what it is. It's fine to desire shelter. It's fine to desire love in your life. But put to death anything that you are desiring more than you should, more than you desire God. He is your only epi-desire. And that's exactly why at the end of that verse, Paul says, which is idolatry? Now, most of us would sit there and think, boy, I don't have evil desires. What are evil desires? Evil desires are mass murder, rape, and you know, pillaging, and you know, going Vikinging or something like that. None of us, are, there's no Vikings out here and that kind of stuff. We don't have evil desires. Paul says, yes, you absolutely do. Evil desires are these overwhelming, this, this hyper desire for anything other than God and God alone. In, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. In them, you used to walk, brothers and sisters. Not now, you used to walk. In that past tense, before you were united with Christ. So why is it that you are supposed to put these things to death? Why is it that he says, lean upon the Spirit, depend upon the Spirit, look to the Spirit to kill these things in your life? Why? Because you used to walk in them. But that's not who you are anymore. So... Paul then says, put, now you must put away all these things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene language from your, from your mouths. Again, you can read that kind of list and you sit there and think, well, wrath, uh, you know, anger, once in a while I lose my temper, but wrath, malice, most of us aren't very malicious, you know, those kind of things. Paul says, yeah, that's exactly what you are in God's eyes if you are separated from Jesus Christ. But once you are united with Jesus Christ, look at what the next line says. Do not lie to one another. Now, I'm, I'm just on the back end of raising our kids. Uh, our kids are now off in college and stuff like that. But I remember talking so much so with Jason, in particular, my son. And I'm trying to say, look, don't lie. And, and like all parents here in this room, you're, you're trying desperately to get your kids not to lie. And you're giving them all the good reasons, right? Don't lie. It, it breaks trust. You will always... This is, a, this is what it means to be a Henry Knapp, by the way. If you lie, you always get caught. Okay, so uh, you always get caught, Jace. You're going to get caught. Don't lie. It, it, uh, it breaks trust. You're, you always get caught. And it's never, in the end, it's never really worth it. Okay? Those are some of the reasons, and many others, that I would put forth to Jason. Don't lie. Notice carefully what Paul says here. This is the, again... The essence of what it means for us to live a holy life is doing all of these things, but why do we do all of these things? Notice what Paul says here. He says, do not lie because it breaks trust. No, do not lie because God is truthful. No, he doesn't say any of that stuff. He says, verse... uh, Where are we? Verse 9. Is that a 9? Verse 9. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self. Seeing, because, because in Christ, because when you are united with Him, that old man, that old woman, that old person is put off. It's gone. This is a past tense statement. And you have put on in the present. You have put on the new self with all of its beings, and now it's being transformed more and more into the image of its Creator. Why does Paul say you're supposed to kill the things of the flesh? Why does Paul say you're supposed to look to the Spirit and the Spirit alone as the one who will carry out God's plan to transform you more and more into His image? Why? Because you are a new creation. You are that way, so live consistently according to what God has called you to. Now, it's one thing to put off all my sin. And I sit and I imagine, okay, now, if all of my sin were killed here before you, you know the only thing that would show? The only thing that would show, all oh, my sin is killed and it's glorious, and the only thing that would show would be nothing. You kill the sin right here. And I. it's not that, oh, then all my good things would show. All, all, everything that is deep within me, do these funerals occasionally For people who are outside the church uh, Funeral directors a call And they'll say, hey, I've got somebody Who doesn't have any church connection And they want to do a funeral Would you be willing to do the funeral? I say, of course And I show up there And, you know, I'm talking with people And they're like, well, this guy was a mass murderer And everything But he was good on the inside <laughs> I'm like, and, and here's the thing My inside is where it's really bad Your inside is where it's really bad. If all the sin in your life suddenly is killed, what's left is not, oh, some glorious, the real... No, what's left is nothing apart from the great grace of Jesus Christ. For Paul goes on and says, it's not just put to death all these things by the power of the Spirit, Put all these things to death. Then he goes on in verse 12. And he says, The negative is put to death all the earthly things. The positive is this. Put on then, as God's holy and chosen ones, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So once you have put to death all of these things, then you put on. And the word here is is to clothe. So clothe yourself. That's the idea of, of putting on. And a number of the other translations, translate it that way. Clothe yourself with Christ. We're supposed to put on. Now, for me, clothing, and I think for most of us, clothing is something that hides who we really are. Uh, biblically, that's not really the idea. Biblically, clothing identifies who you really are. And so Paul here says, put on... All of these things, he lists out compassion, kindness, goodness. He lists out the qualities, but those qualities are not just characteristics alone. Paul's not saying put on all these different characteristics. He's saying put on the one who identifies all those characteristics. Put on Jesus Christ. Clothe yourself on the outside with Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's who you really are. Look at verse 12 again before Paul talks about what it means to be clothed, he says, as God's chosen ones. This is not to get into deep aspects of theology. This is simply to recognize the words that Paul uses. He calls you chosen by God. He identifies you as somebody that God himself comes, looks you square in the eyes, and says, you will be mine. Too much of the time we think of God up in heaven simply going, well, I'll take this group over here. Or, well, I'm just going to do all of this and stuff like that. That's not Paul's picture. Paul's picture is to come to you as an individual, look you in the eye and say, God has chosen you. He has chosen You and now, now you are holy. Now you are set apart for Him. Now you are, what's the other one? Holy and beloved. Now you are holy and beloved. And because that's who you are in God's eyes, and and I know it's hard to believe this, it's hard to imagine that before you kill all that sin. You haven't killed all that sin yet. That's Paul's command to you right now to be doing. And before all that takes place, it's hard for you to look at yourself and say, ah, how can he really call me beloved? How can he really call me holy? Maybe getting there, or maybe wanting to be holy, wanting to be beloved, wanted to be chosen. But that's not what the text says. The text says, because... Right now, if you believe it or not, if you feel it or not, you are beloved. You are chosen. And you are holy. Therefore, what do you do? Clothe yourself. Cover yourself with Jesus Christ. Put on Jesus Christ. You've got that line in verse 13 down here where it says, if anyone has a complaint against you, which by the way, somebody will. If somebody has a complaint against you, forgiving each other, then it says, as the Lord has forgiven you. And the thought process there is that Jesus is our model. Because Jesus has forgiven us, then in that same way, working off of the model, we too are supposed to... That's not what Paul's arguing here. Paul's saying, if indeed you clothe yourself with Christ, if you, cover, if you are hidden with Christ, as he mentions in verse 3, if that's who you are, then you are going to act like Christ. Not because He's a model that you're following, but because you have clothed yourself, you have identified yourself so completely that you can't not do what Christ does. Lazarus is identified in the Scriptures as Jesus' friend. More than a disciple, more more than a disciple, more than than uh, than, than anything else, uh, a follower of Christ, Lazarus is identified as a friend of Jesus, and so of course in John 11, it's always very shocking where Jesus then waits when he hears that his friend is sick to the point of dying. Jesus delays and waits until Lazarus dies and is buried. And is in the cave for four solid days rotting before Jesus decides to go and visit him. And he stands before that throne, that place of death, inside that that cave, and he stands there and and he weeps. He is so deeply moved that the word is that, that splagudzima, Jesus' guts are ripped. Because of his compassion for his good friend who died while Jesus dithered around and did nothing. And out of a great sense of compassion, he says, Jesus says, Move that stone out of the way. And Martha, who is well aware, of what it smells like, well aware of what it's like when a body is decaying after four days without the care in which we might give it today. When the body is decaying like it is, Martha says, you don't want to smell what's in there. You want nothing to do with that. But Jesus says, no, roll that stone out of the way. You will see the glory of God. And that stone is rolled out of the way. That thing, here you've got the Lord of life the Lord of life standing outside, and inside is the cave of complete death. And in that death, blocking the way is that stone, the stone that hinders the dead people from being with the Lord of life. And Jesus says, roll that stone away, and doesn't tell us how that stone is going to be rolled away, but it says, get that thing that represents sin, that hinders the dead person from being with the Lord of life, get that stone out of the way. And the stone is rolled out of the way, and Jesus takes a deep breath, takes a deep breath, and with a powerful voice of command, says, Lazarus, come out. And then suddenly, I don't know if it just pops, I don't know if Lazarus hops out or whatever, but suddenly Lazarus is standing there in the cave, and he's standing, and the people are going, I don't know what the people are doing, but they've got to be horrified or going crazy, or they're outstanding. Everybody's, and Jesus, his good friend, who he just raised from the dead, and Jesus doesn't say, hey, what was it like in there? Or, you know, Jesus, what does Jesus do? Take off his grave clothes. That's Jesus' command. Take off his grave clothes. Now, for four days, this isn't quite mummification as you might picture in, in Egypt, but it's similar to that. The wrap, his body wrapped the whole way, the, the a cloth over his face, uh, his body hunched together, a shroud wrapped around him, the grave clothes that are holding him in the grave, that are identifying him as dead. And you know what you wear when you're in a tomb? You wear grave clothes, because that's what dead people wear. But when Jesus calls him forth, and he stands there at the edge of the tomb, and he is alive, The first thing Jesus says is, take off the grave clothes. Because how wrong would it be to be alive and to be walking around with the stench and the uncleanness and the the decay of the grave clothing that is holding on to you across this board. Jesus doesn't say to Lazarus, Take off the grave clothing. He says to the community, take off the grave clothing. Take the grave clothing off Lazarus because he is free. I am free in Jesus Christ. I need your help to take off the grave clothing. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are free right now. Don't walk around with grave clothing. Look for the help of your brothers and sisters. And ultimately, trust and depend upon the Spirit who will put to death that earthly nature and who will enable you, who will bless you by putting on our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, how grateful we are that You have not left us in the grave, that You have not left us in death, but rather that You have called us forth to be living, and now we want to live consistently with that. We want, Lord, to be... Rid of our grave clothing. We want to be rid of anything that marks us as dead. And we want to live true lives. Lives where we demonstrate Your holiness and righteousness. Where we cover ourselves so intimately and completely with You. Lord, it's going to be so hard for us to keep straight what you speak in this passage, that we are not doing these things so that we might be pleasing to you, but that we are pleasing to you right now. And therefore, Lord, give us what we need. Bless us by taking off the old grave clothing and putting on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.